Thanks for listening to the Mark Aram Show podcast. Thanks for Xfinity for sponsoring said podcast. A couple of things in life I don't skimp on. Toilet paper, razor blades, seafood. I want the best of the best when it comes to all three. And internet. That's why I use Xfinity Internet. And it's the amazing 10G network. The 10G network from Xfinity. The future starts now. Smarter, more consistent, and a secure network. And it only gets better. Jump on board the Xfinity 10G network online. Just go to Xfinity.com. No, I want this town to be near you. No, gray skies ever turn blue. I stand alone. I stand alone. Mark Aram here. There, but you don't care about me tonight. You care about the greatest guest we've ever had on the show. He continues our Veterans Day salute. He is Fred Shear from Eatonton, Georgia, World War II veteran, former prisoner of war, author of an amazing book, A European Sojourn. If you want to uh, contact Fred and get a copy of it, it's uh, F O S C H E E R at mindspring.com, correct? That's right, and if they just get by my spell blocker, unfortunately, I'll, <laughs> I'll send them a form, and they can send me the form back for a check, and they'll get an autographed copy. Fantastic. Like I got uh, last year that you sent me. Mark, excuse me. Yes, sir. Well, I'm, I grew up in Edenton, but I haven't been in Atlanta since 1953, so I'm in Atlanta. You, you are an official Atlantan. That's right. Absolutely. All right. So when we last left before news, weather, and traffic, you have been uh, lended out. You, you were you were captured by the German army in France. Right. Uh, a number of modes of transport later, you are in a German prison camp, and then they send you out to work at a, a labor uh, camp for the railroads. Right? Yeah. Actually, uh, let me back up a moment and say you mentioned the uh, notice to my parents. The Eden Messenger, which was the hometown paper. I, in fact, I, in my book, I have copies of news prints from the Eden Messenger. But we were in this camp. Uh, let me explain it a little bit more. The camp was a little one-story building with you know, a U-shape that had rooms where we had, in each room, each group had two rooms. There was 20 men in a, in a rail crew that I was in, and we had a room for it was like a day room where we had whatever possessions we had, which was nothing. And then there was a sleeping room where there was nothing in it but double-decker bunks and a, and a pot belly stove. And at 9 o'clock, you were locked up in there. But when you were off-duty otherwise, you were in this other room, and you had, you know, a pasteboard box with all your little goodies in it. You... You can't believe how it is that everything that you owned in this world was what you had on your back, what you had in your pockets, and in that pasteboard box. I can't. I can't imagine. What were your little goodies at this point? I can't even imagine well, what you'd have. Well, well, if you could steal some food somewhere or something, but then we were lucky enough to get international Red Cross packages. In our case, we got one one a month. Uh, to be divided between two people. Some places, some guys got one a month to be divided between five or seven or eight. 
and some got none in other camps. And uh, when the war was over, by the way, a lot of the GIs found warehouses where the Germans had hoarded these things. No kidding. They had just warehouses full of them. And there's some other stories that go with that, too, but at any rate. So you're, wor- you're working labor for the railroads. Uh, what did that entail exactly? What, what were you doing day to day? Okay, we were going out uh, and repairing the rails, whether they needed to be raised or lowered or that sort of thing. And let me explain. Uh, it was a little different there than here. You, if you visualize a railroad track, and over here we have wooden cross ties. Mm-hmm. Over there, there were steel cross ties. Over here, they were put attached to the rails with a plate and a spike that was driven down into the wooden cross tie. Over there, we had a wrench and uh, bolts that bolted them, the uh, a clamp down onto this metal or steel cross tie. And it's just the top half of the cross tie because it didn't need the rest of it. <laughs> we had, and the roadbed that the, that the uh, cross ties were lying on was made of aggregate of gravel. Excuse me. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, you're okay, Fred. At any rate, and uh, what we would do, the German workmaster would go move down the track, and we would have a jack at a place he had told us to put it, and he would put his chin down on the track and sight down the track beside with his hand motions for the, the track needed to be raised or lowered. <laughs> and we'd crank it up and we'd drive uh, aggregate or whatnot under the under the cross ties or dig some out. And I got to tell you that we did our little help. We did what we could for the German boy up at we some of our some of our guys were just outstanding. They could take a, one of the picks that we used to with the gravel and break a handle like you just as smooth as you <laughs> and you know, if the Germans were looking it was just they were just really the guy was just really, you know, sorry about that. Yeah. If the Germans wasn't looking, we all got a big laugh. Let me ask you a question, Fred. At this point in time, um, obviously, you know, you're 20 years old. This is quite an experience for any any age, but someone at 20. At this point, you're in the in the German camp. Are you are you fearful for your life on a day to day basis, or are you pretty resigned to the fact? All right, really, I'm going to be used really, as really, really not. And we like I say we we would get up in the morning. And we'd have a cup of Arasetz coffee. And then we would line up and then we'd march out. And we'd. Let me, let me go back and explain a little bit more about the camp, if I might. Sure. Uh, the camp, as I said, was situated adjacent to this major rail center. There was a big switch, switching uh, facility where they would back a train load of. I mean, a, a whole train of boxcars up and then lock the brakes and then one by one, release the brakes on them and let them slide, go down into the different places they wanted to switch them to. Then there was a coaling station where the recoal, you know, got coal because these were all coal engines. They weren't anything like electric engines back then. And then there was a major roundhouse. And a roundhouse, of course, is where they, they serviced and repaired the steam engines. And around the roundhouse were spokes out out you know, like uh, uh, spokes on a wheel. And uh, now coming back to where, where were we? Okay, 
we were working on the track. Yeah, you we, said you, you weren't feel for for your life. You'd wake up, you'd have coffee, you'd you'd get ready to to get out and 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 head out. They they would they would walk us down. Our group now there was there was another rail group that worked somewhere else, and then there were some guys that worked in a factory, some that worked uh, in the coaling station. And that sort of thing, so that made up the whole eighty of How long were you there before the idea of escape came about, and how did the idea of escaping come about? Well, you know, we were in the middle of Germany, of Mark. You know, where were you going to go if you escaped? You didn't. You didn't speak. Any, didn't speak the language. You didn't look like it, like the people. So, you really, there wasn't much hope of escaping. Uh, it just didn't make sense. And that came along much later. I'll explain to you when I get to it in a minute. Okay. But anyway, so anyway, let's let's without delving too much on on working on the rails. And there's a lot more to that story too, and lots of things. I will say this: when the American bombers would come over, and they came over every day and every night, but as they would come over, the Germans would make us leave the tracks and go away from the tracks up on the hills just in case, but we never got bombed there. So at, one, at night, though, the Americans or the Brits would come over at 9 o'clock, and we'd have to leave because we were right next to the tracks, and this was a major rail center. Mm-hmm. We'd have to leave and go away from the tracks and just some woods, and the German guards would see the flashes and they'd point out and say, that's Chemnitz, that was... Uh, oh, that was uh, some other city or whatnot. Mm-hmm. They could see the flashes, and they knew the cities that were being bombed. But Mark, on April the 15th, a beautiful Sunday morning. This is 1945. 1945. Okay. And uh, it was warm. The Germans didn't make us work on Sunday. Mm-hmm. And guys were, you know, taking it easy. Some were sitting outside in the sun. Even two or three of them were trying to wash their clothes. The only clothes they had were the ones they were wearing. But I was sitting in, in the barracks along with my table mate, and we were just talking about whatever. And we were sitting there, and all of a sudden, about mid-morning, somebody says, Quiet! We looked around, what's... and we listened, and we could hear from the northwest through the sound of the grinding of airplane engines and they were coming closer and closer and as they got closer and they got real came in coming in low they were, we could hear the rattle of machine gun fire 50 caliber machine gun fire 20 millimeter cannons and what they were can they came in low over the camp and they were they were after those engines around around that roundhouse that sunday morning every track had a engine being waiting to be repaired and they made a pass, they came through and turned around, they came back and made another pass, and then they were gone. Oh. It, was it was silence. You can't believe it. And we ran out of the barracks and into the into the compound, and there was guards and there was prisoners, and we were all just people at that point. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, just not knowing what was going to happen next. About Within about an hour, the Germans ran, took all the prisoners, and took us about two miles out in some woods away from the tracks because I guess they thought maybe the Americans may be going to come back and bomb the place or whatnot. And we spent the day out there. 
And about oh, late afternoon, a group of German uh, Hitler youth. Now, these were 12 and 14-year-old kids with black uniforms and swastika armbands and automatic weapons. And, gosh, you just knew that these guys, they you could just see the glint in the eye. They just liked to have the idea, see how it would be like to use one of those weapons on us. But we didn't give them the chance. <laughs> they... Uh, they heard us back in. We were back in the camp that night, and we were one, spent the night wondering what, you know, should we do? Are the Russians moving in closer? Are they going to be, are we going to be caught in a crossfire or what? Well, none of that happened because we got word that the next morning the Germans were getting ready to evacuate the camp. Now, I'm going I'm to stop you right there, Fred. We're going to come back. Um, he is still in a German prison camp. This is April of 1945. 20-year-old uh, private, born in Eatonton, now in Atlanta, Frederick Shears. Amazing escape from a German prison camp coming straight ahead next. Stay with us, please. It's Veterans Day edition of the Mark Aram Show. Mark Aram on 95.5 and AM 750 WSB. We return in the Wayback Machine to April 1945. He is Frederick Scheer. He's a private. He is captured by the German army. He is uh, in a work camp. And we got about three minutes before news, Frederick. So uh, you get back from the woods and the German Hitler youth. Uh, what's, okay. your, what's your state of mind at this point? Confused. Confused. But let me, let me, in the few seconds we've got before the break, mm-hmm. let me say this. The Germans had a system at that time that as the Russians pressed in from the east, as they got to some distance of a prisoner war camp, they took the prisoners out and put them on the road walking toward the west. And some of these guys had been prisoners for two or three years, some of them for months like me, and they were in pretty bad shape, but they had to walk them anyway. And and though and as the Americans and the Brits came in from the west and got close to a camp, they were putting the prisoners on the wall on the road walking toward the east. And uh, this, you know, we've heard about about the uh, death walks in the Pacific, but these were like death walks in some cases. But uh, coming back, what? What we, the, so we found out the Germans were getting ready to evacuate the camp. And I had developed a uh, sore on one of my, my left foot. Not a bad one, but it was. And I went to the German corporal that was a camp commander and said I couldn't walk. I needed to go to the Revere. The Revere was a, a clinic that the Germans had established for all the Americans and British prisoners in that area. And... Uh, for medical purposes, of course, and it was run by a French doctor and a French priest, and it was up somewhere close to where the roundhouse was, and I'm sure the, the German corporal was busy and whatnot, and he figured if I was there, I must have been there with, with a guard, and he says, go, and I went. I didn't have a guard with me. I, I walked out, and I found my way up to that. I found my way to the clinic, and there, a French doctor says, come in, and he patched up my foot, and put my shoe back on, and he says, you want to stay here? And I says, yeah. And with that, he says, there's some bunks back there, and go crawl in one. And there was about a dozen bunks, I guess, double-decker bunks. There's maybe 15 or 20 American or British or whatnot prisoners there. 
and none of them were too sick, I think. Anyway, so uh, that night, I heard some German guards come in, and they heard the French doctor saying, no, no, he's not here, no, 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 no. So they were looking for me, but they went away. Let, let me jump in real quick. So this the foot injury actually might have been the reason you were able to escape the German prison camp. We're going to hear the rest of this amazing tale from Fred Shear when we come right back. POW, World War II veteran, and our honored guest on this Veterans Day edition of the Mark Aram Show. We'll be right back. It's News 95.5 and AM 750 WSB. I'm WSB's Clark Howard. Howard. From Dunwoody to Douglasville. Washington to Woodstock. Whenever and wherever there's there severe weather, a traffic red alert, or breaking news. The WSB 24-hour breaking news center will break in. Depend on it. Hi, this is Rob Reiner, and you're listening to the Mark Aram Show. Keep packing animals two by two. Out the camel in a kangaroo. Pack them in that ox so tight. I couldn't get no sleep that night. Roll the sun, chip them hell. Tell them about the master play. Oh, my Lord. If the story of Frederick Shear, the 20-year-old private from Georgia, was a movie, we'd be entering the third and final act, as he is currently in a German prison camp, April of 1945, in World War II. He is a private. He's 20 years old. He is Frederick Shear. He injured his foot at the German prison camp, goes to see the French doctor, and the French doctor provides you a little bit of a safe haven there, Fred. Right. The next morning... Uh, another American and I decided we'd walk around and see what was going on. I guess we were getting a little brazen. At any rate, we walked down into the town of Adolf, just into the edge of it, and we came to a small house on the right-hand side of the street that was kind of set aside and decided we'd try our luck. So we went around to the back and knocked on the door, and a German lady opened the door and says, and I guess she used a sign language or whatnot, but she says, would you like some food? And food was everything, Mark. By then, that time, we were all practiced off. But at any rate, we What, what are you wearing right now, Fred, that, that you can just walk around? Oh, old beat-up uniforms. Well, now, my jacket had a big orange triangle in the back, which made it an easy target, I mm-hmm. guess. But you're in you're in a, a U.S. Army uniform. Well, yeah, uh, they were what was uniforms of the day when we were cap- uh, at the time of when we were, I was captured. Okay, they'd, they'd changed by then. But at any rate, so with an essence of time, let me I'll go forward a little bit here. Uh, the lady was trying to fix us some food, and by this, by the way. The German civilians knew the war was over. They were deathly afraid of the Russians coming in and taking over because they knew how the German soldiers had treated the Russian civilians. So at any rate, she was standing around trying to fix her something to eat, and all of a sudden she turned white as a sheet, still stone, you know, just stood there stone still, and I couldn't figure out what was wrong. My buddy nudged me on the shoulder and pointed out the front window. And across the street was a group of Hitler youth mulling around, pointing at the house. And we didn't want this woman to get in any trouble. We just kind of eased out and eased our way back to the camp, back to the Revere, the clinic. That afternoon, the French doctor called all the guys together. 
uh, I don't remember how many, maybe it may have been 20 of us, I don't know, but there were Americans, Canadians, British, uh, Australians, New Zealanders, you know, the whole bit. And he said, I'm going to take tomorrow morning after breakfast, I'm going to take four of you guys within one kilometer of the line, of the front line, and you can get out from there. And he said, okay, we're going to cut cards. And he had a deck of cards, and he spread them out on the table, and uh, the four highest, and I was one of the lucky ones. I had one of the high cards. Strangely enough, it turned out there was me, an American, a Brit, a Kiwi, an Aussie, an Australian, and a New Zealander. Not by national origin, but by the luck of the draw. And the next morning after breakfast, the doctor says, now you can't have anything like a bag, a box, backpack, nothing except what you can carry in your pocket, and let's go. And we went out. He was in the lead, and we went out and followed a somewhat of a circuitous route behind houses and whatnot, stayed off the roads and walked for about an hour, and we finally ended up down in a deep woods. And when we got there, we looked around, and there must have been 25 or so French. I don't know whether they were soldiers, ex-prisoners, or whether they were, uh, you know, labor, but they had escaped too. And... Contrary to the way we were set up, these these guys had boxes and bags and suitcases and pots and pans and whatnot. And he says, French doctor says, you follow these people and they'll get you out. Well, we've come this far, so what are you going to do? So what? We follow them. And we walked for about 15 minutes and we got to the edge of a clearing. And you could see from where we were, we were kind of the back, but you could see Way across on the other side of the clearing, there was another clump of trees, but this was an open land. And about three or four of the princes got out into the clearing, and we heard this resounding halt. And everybody knew what that meant. Germans came out, came out from foxholes all over. We, Mark, we had escaped. We had escaped right through a German outpost. <laughs> right into the, the waiting arms of the army. And they, so they took us back in and they took us back to a little town. And strangely enough, they took us to a schoolhouse and they took us into the auditorium. And it reminded me very much of the auditorium in the schoolhouse in Edenton, where I grew up. And there was a stage and, and then out in front of the stage, there may have been chairs for about 50 people, but... On the stage was a bunch of other people already there, and they had boxes and bags and goodies and whatnot. And the Germans had us to go in to the audience area and sit down with our friends and said, you know, and just a little bit, somebody will be here to, to you know, to, to take you back, to get you. And just as soon as the German guards walked out, these people up on the stage took off. They were... They ran out, and they were gone. And as soon as they were out of the door, the people we were with bounded up on the stage because look at all the good things they could find up there. And while, and while they were doing that, we eased out, and we pretty well knew our way back to the Revere, back to the clinic. And as we were walking along the road, there were four of us, and we came, we saw a lady standing out beside a house over on our right, and she was waving to us to come to her. Now, remember, again, the civilians wanted to be nice to anybody mm -hmm. that they thought could help them. So 
we walked up there, and, and uh, she said, would you like some milk? Well, Mark, again, food, milk, oh, yeah. We said, yes, ma'am. <laughs> and she led us around the other side of the house, and she lifted a wooden fitted wooden top off of a terracotta urn that was down in the ground, and it was full of beautiful white milk. And we all had each had a, a, a you know, a, a turn at it. Uh, and uh, we all thanked him. You know, they, she may have been feeding the pigs out of that, but it <laughs> looked good. Anyway, you didn't care. You didn't care. We, didn't care. we got back <laughs> on the road and continued to walk in the way of the, toward the, the clinic. And we got, I've told this story many times, but this at this point, I can't hardly believe this next thing myself. But at any rate, as we were going along, off, it was about noon. You could tell the sun was high and whatnot. And off to the left of the road was a German field kitchen. Now, there were German soldiers lining up, picking up eating utensils and going through the line and being served with lunch. And they'd go sit down and sit down on the side somewhere and eat their lunch. Would you believe we walked down, we got in line, Picked up utensils, <laughs> got served. Nobody said a word. We sat off to ourselves, and we had a great, the best lunch, best food, best meal we'd had in months. You just you just acted like you belonged, and you were able to. We just act, we, just, <laughs> we got through. We put our eating utensils back where the Germans been putting theirs. We turned around and waved, waved, and say, you know, goodbye and thank you. And one of the German soldiers got up from where he was sitting and said, wait. I said, oh, boy, we got a problem. <laughs> so he came over to us and he said, look, you guys, you better stay off the road. The German SS people are wandering all over this territory. And if they see a prisoner walking loose, they just shoot him on sight. Wow. No questions asked. So you better stay off the roads while we... Thanked them for the food. We thanked them for the information and whatnot, but we didn't stay off the roads. We just kept going. We got back to the clinic, and the, the French doctor said, what happened? And we explained it. And he said, well, your bunks are still there. Go back in them. So the next morning, the Aussie and the Kiwi and myself were having breakfast together. Uh, you got to understand now, these two guys, were captured in El Alamein, North Africa. They've mm. been prisoners for about three years. Wow. But they had a lot of seniority on me, but it didn't really matter. Now, we were sitting there, and I said, you know, we're all infantry. We know where we were. We know where the German outposts are. Why don't we just go do it ourselves? And we did. And we headed out after breakfast, just kept going. Took about an hour, got down the same place in the deep woods, and we said, well, there wasn't any Frenchmen there, but there was a, you could tell a lot of people had been there. But we said, okay, now we know where the German outposts are. So we went about 2,000 yards down to the right and said, we hope we've gotten around them. And we eased back up to the edge of the woods, and we didn't have any problem and whatnot. So we had a kind of a mini-conference, and we uh, said, okay, three things can happen. We can walk out of here and get shot in the back. So that'll end it. So what? Or we can walk out of here and we get called back and we get to be back in the soup again. Or we can walk out of here and keep walking and we'll get to those woods over there and we'll be free. We will have we will have escaped. And that's what we did. We walked and walked and walked. We got to those woods and 
we were there and we were free. We were escaped. And we said, well, we sat down to rest and we look around to see where to go next. And we looked down to our left and down the hill a ways was a little town that kind of on the line with the, with the, uh, with the out, German outpost. And we said, well, the town, you know, there's German soldiers there. So forget it. We won't go there. We looked the other direction. There was an autobahn, you know, an express like mm-hmm. you talk about in the morning. Anyway, <laughs> and we said, well, we'll try going that way. We wanted to go to the west because that's where the Americans should be, and that's what we were looking for. So we walked a good way, so we got to the autobahn, and we, it was raised up, and we had to kind of crawl up on it, and we did. And just as we got up on it, we trying to decide which way to continue to walk. We heard somebody hollering at us, and we looked up a ways, and, there was a German soldier with an automatic weapon hanging off his shoulder, and we were captured again. Unbelievable. <laughs> we, so we went to see what he wanted, you know. What are you going to do? He had the, he had the gun. He had the gun. Didn't. And so he took us back to his camp, and we waited outside. There were German soldiers wandering all over the place, so we just stood quietly. Nobody said anything to us. We didn't say anything to them. And in a few minutes, he came back out, and he says, Come, come. So... We followed him, and there it was. It was the German soldier and the three of us, and, and made four. And we were all about the same age again. And, uh, and uh, he was trying out his English, and we were listening. We were talking back and forth, you know, just four young guys. And so we started then trying to talk him into surrendering to us. <laughs> We said, you know, you'd be a lot safer with us. The war's about over. You may get killed. He said, oh, no. In two weeks, I'm going back to Berlin to see my girlfriend. I'd love to be with her than with you guys. <laughs> so, so at any rate, we got to a little town, and we got to a uh, – he took to a, a little jail. And the jailer opened the gate, opened the, a cell, and he said, there's three bunks in there. Go in and crawl in and go to sleep. So what the heck? That's what we did. We went in. He closed the door. We turned out. We went to sleep. And the next morning, he woke us up and gave us all a cup of coffee. I guess it's Airsets coffee, you know, made from barley or something. Mm-hmm. And we said, thank you. He didn't lock the door, so we just walked out. We kept walking. We stayed We stayed off the roads this time, and we walked across fields and hills and whatnot and farms and so this is your the, your third your third escape here. We got about two minutes left. Uh, take us to to how you were actually free after this point. Okay, uh, very quickly we uh, finally got to some about sundown. We got to some woods and we crawled up in them. We said this is a safe place to be, and uh, we went to sleep. And the next morning, about sun up, we looked around and it was just as clear as it could be. You could see in every direction because all the underbrush was gone. There was a road off to our left, and we walked out, started walking on that road. There wasn't any people there. And after a while, we started seeing houses with white flags on them and that sort of thing. And all of a sudden, two GIs came up out of the ditch, one on either side, and says, Who are you? And it took me a little bit of time, but with my dog tags I still had, I uh, convinced them who I was. And I could vouch for the other two people, and they had us taken back to be uh, interrogated in the back, and from there, uh, it was all over. What an amazing story. I I want you to hang out for a couple more minutes, Fred, if you don't mind, because a a lot of folks want to know, um, how to get your book. Uh, it's called A European Sojourn, 
Uh, it goes in depth. You know, we just spent two hours with the greatest guest ever on this Veterans Day. But if you want to know more and more about Fred's story, which I know you do, you're going to want to get his book. So Fred will come back. We'll tell He'll tell us how to get his book. And uh, we'll wrap things up. Uh, but again, Fred, thank you so much for sharing an amazing story with our audience again. It's been an unbelievable pleasure, brother. Well, this is fun. Hang tight. We'll be right back. The best guest in the history of the Mark Aram Show, Frederick Shear, Private, U.S. Army, World War II. We're going to come right back. This is the Mark Aram Show. Mark Aram on 95.5 and AM 750 WSB. No question about it. We are thankful for his service, his story, his book. He is Frederick Shear. How can they get your book? F-O-S-C-H-E-E-R at MindSpring. That's M-I-N-D-S-P-R-I-N-G dot com. If send me an email, I, unfortunately, I have a spam blocker. They'll have to go through it, but I'll answer. I'll send them back a flyer that will describe it as well as another book I have. And they and they send it in, and I'll send them an autograph book, autograph to anybody they want it, autograph. And here's what I'll do, folks, too. I will tweet out Fred's email for you and i'll put it on my facebook page so uh you can you can if, if you're driving right now you don't have it don't worry just check back later on my twitter account or facebook mark aram um i, I really can't thank you enough fred for for joining us spending two hours of your night on veterans day uh but oh, i love i love can, can i say one quick thing absolutely okay the real heroes today are those men and women that are in all the different services and believe understand that they all ask to be there they're all volunteers and they put themselves in a position not just to be in harm's way, to be where the firing is. Where, you know, uh, I can't say enough for those guys and girls. They're just great. And I, one other quick thing. Yes, sir. The, I've talked to a lot of other ex-POWs from around the United States or in Germany. And to a man, none of them felt that if they were able to make it home, some of them knew they wouldn't make it, they'd die from their wounds, whatnot. But if they would make it home... They were going to be coming home with, with the victorious side. They knew we were going to win the war. And win it, you did. Let's do this again next year, Fred. Thank you for your service. Thank you for your time. Folks, you got to get the book. Uh, Frederick Shear. thank you so much, Fred. Have a great, safe Veterans Day and a great uh, Christmas holiday season, buddy. Just, I mean, come on. He starred the show, by the way. No that need was to, awesome. Yeah, no need to say that uh, he is star of the show. Uh, thanks to everybody. Again, I will put his email out on Twitter, at Mark Aram, Facebook, Mark Aram WSB, Instagram, Mark Aram. Thank you to all the veterans out there. In the meantime, go to sleep, little go baby. Go to sleep, you little baby. Guests of the Mark Aram Show stay at the All Suite Omni Hotel, located in the heart of Chicago's Magnificent Mile. Thanks for listening to the Mark Aram Show podcast. Thanks for Xfinity for sponsoring said podcast. A couple of things in life I don't skimp on. Toilet paper, razor blades, seafood. I want the best of the best when it comes to all three. And internet. That's why I use Xfinity internet. And it's the amazing 10G network. The 10G network from Xfinity. The future starts now. Smarter, more consistent, and a secure network. And it only gets better. Jump on board the Xfinity 10G network online. Just go to Xfinity.com.